Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. I don't see color, and my world is gray. Grass is gray, sky is gray, everything's gray in the USA. Can't you see? All this history is killing me. Ask me how I know, oh, 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 because they told me so. It's a gas from a dying art form, gas from a dying art Welcome back to another episode of the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast and part three of my series on the hidden histories of tap dance histories. Tap dance history has been published regularly for approximately 100 years through the format of the DIY Teach Yourself at Home instructional books and syllabi, each of these books having their own version of a history of tap dance. In episode six, I looked at instruction books from the 1930s to 2003 with a focus on one from the Jim Crow era in particular. In episode 7, I do a deep dive into 1977's The Book of Tap by Jerry Ames and Jim Siegelman, written in the post-civil rights movement era. In this episode, titled Colorblind Tap Dance, I look at another at-home tap dance reference book with a short history that was written 30 years after the Civil Rights era. The book is Tap Works by Beverly Fletcher, originally published in 1998, and a second revised edition was published in 2002. Interestingly, I cannot find a first edition of Tap Works anywhere. Not on eBay, not on Amazon, not in any library, nowhere. Even the site tapdancingresources.com only lists the publishing date of the second edition, April 1st, 2002. And Kathy is usually pretty thorough about this type of stuff. So if anyone has a first edition of Tap Works by Beverly Fletcher, please let me know. I would like to take a moment to introduce the author of Tap Works, Beverly Fletcher. Beverly Fletcher Belegia was born on October 4, 1927 in Boston, Massachusetts. Fletcher was a devoted student receiving her Bachelor of Arts degree from Buffalo State Teachers College and her master's degree from Niagara University. Miss Bev, as she was known, was the owner of Miss Bev's Dance Studio in Niagara Falls, New York, where she taught for 50 years. Fletcher was instrumental in developing the theater program at Niagara University, where she did all the choreography for their musical productions and was on their faculty until her retirement. She also developed her own tap shoe that was marketed and produced by the Capizio Company, and started her own dance company in 1975 called Am Dance, that performed around the country for many years. Fletcher also developed the criteria for the tap dance certification exam for the Dance Masters of America organization, and thanks them in her acknowledgments, writing that, quote, I thank the Dance Masters of America for their acceptance of tap works as its official reference book, and Regold, the national president, for suggesting that this book might be used for that purpose, end quote. Beverly Fletcher passed away on January 10th, 2009. 
The history of tap dance presented in Tapworks is 18 pages long and is more comprehensive than the average syllabi or instructional book in my collection. It has large pages and small text lined up in two vertical rows on each page, so it crams a lot in there. There is both a citation page and a bibliography, rare for an instructional book. And I try to get my hands on as many of the sources as possible. And they range from the instructional books published by companies like S.A. Barnes & Co. in the 1930s to more contemporary works, like the Stearns' Jazz Dance and America Dances by Agnes DeMille. Compared to its Jim Crow-era predecessors, Tapworks is much more progressive in terms of how it addresses the African and African-American contribution to tap dance. And despite its short page count, Tapworks manages to create an even more detailed history than is found in Ames and Siegelman's The Book of Tap. However, I contend that the progressiveness of the language obfuscates an underlying problem with the text, that it is an example of a tap dance history told through the lens of a racially colorblind ideology. Let's take a moment to understand what a racially colorblind ideology is. Colorblind ideology is a system of ideas and ideals developed by white people in the U.S. in the post-civil rights era when it was no longer socially acceptable to say and do things in an overtly racist way. Thus, a style of language was introduced that codified racial talk in abstract terms. Sociologist Eduardo Bonilla Silva in a book titled White Supremacy and Racism in the Post-Civil Rights Era, published in 2001, defines systemic racism as, quote, a materialist interpretation of racism rooted in the fact that races in racialized societies receive substantially different rewards. This material reality is at the core of the phenomenon labeled as racism. Actors in superordinate positions, dominant race, develop a set of social practices, a racial praxis, if you will, and an ideology to maintain the advantages they receive based on their racial classification. That is, they develop a structure to reproduce their systemic advantages. Therefore, the foundation of racism is not the ideas that individuals may have about others, but the social edifice erected over racial inequality, end quote by, quote-unquote, a materialist interpretation of racism, Bonilla Silva means that racism exists mainly due to the dominant race receiving real material and psychological advantages from racism, what Du Bois called the wages of whiteness. And that's why it was created and continues to exist, in order for the dominant race to maintain their level of comfort, not because of some metaphysical hatred for other races. Bonilla Silva addresses the discrepancy that some people might have when discerning between Jim Crow and colorblind ideologies, writing in his 2003 book, Racism Without Racists, Colorblind Racism and the Persistence of Racial Inequality in America, that, quote, one reason why, in general terms, whites and people of color cannot agree on racial matters is because they conceive terms such as racism very differently. Whereas for most whites, racism is prejudice. For most people of color, racism is systemic or institutionalized. End quote. As far as systems are concerned, perhaps the first and greatest system ever created is 
language. Following the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, derogatory racist language became labeled as hate speech, and white people were at a loss as to how to describe their feelings. Take a listen to this clip of an interview from the Tony Reeves experience, conducted by Tony Reeves with his mother and Jim Crow survivor, Glenda Reeves, regarding how white people talked to her following desegregation. Your mother and they never they never talked about uh, integration or segregation. I never even heard those words before. But I but uh, and and I'd never gotten on a bus before. But uh, I bippity bopped on down the street, caught the bus, and sat down on the bus right behind the bus driver. And the bus did not move. But I just sat there, you know, waiting for him to move and stuff like that. And I don't remember if he told me to get off or what. But somehow I got the message I was not supposed to be sitting up front like that, and the bus would not move until I got to the back, back of the bus. But I didn't go to the back of the bus. I got off the bus and cried all the way back home. Did, did anybody on the bus say anything to you? No. Nobody said a no. word. He was, was, was very quiet. Nobody said a word. Hmm. I, guess, I guess they knew something that I didn't know. Were there any black people on, on the bus? I don't remember. I remember people sitting all up front, but they were white. But I just don't remember any black folks on the bus. They might have been at the back, but being a child, you know, and that young and silly, I just paid my money and sat down behind the bus driver. I didn't know. But I learned fast, didn't I? They said nothing. (laughs) They just sat there, not speaking, not moving, completely paralyzed. I mean, if white people hadn't invented a codified racial language, the only way we'd be able to communicate would be by, like, I don't know, blinking in Morse code or, or through interpretive dance or something like that. You know, that explains a lot of the early Denishon Egyptians. St- well, that's a different... Moving on. The language that evolved has a style of its own and employs several linguistic tactics, like semantic moves and rhetorical shields and employ ideological tools like abstract liberalism, naturalization, culturalism, psychological projection, minimization, and the use of linguistic dog whistles to create a form of systemic racism that, unlike the Jim Crow style, is invisible and embedded not only in the actions of racist individuals, but in the very systems and institutions that we work in and inhabit. Benia Silva notes that, quote, The idea that because the normative climate changed dramatically from the Jim Crow era to the post-civil rights era, the language of colorblindness is slippery, apparently contradictory, and often subtle. Thus, analysts must excavate the rhetorical maze of confusing, ambivalent answers to straight questions." One day I want to do a couple episodes on linguistic anthropology, structural determinism, and post-structuralism. But for now, just think of language as the true source of everything man-made. Unless it was only a few people who built all the buildings ever, those first architects have to have told someone else how to do it. And then, and then those architects told someone, and, and so forth. So you could reason that the very building you live in is created by language. We are literally living inside structures built by language. And that's the same with every structure, material, political, social. And it only makes sense that we are in turn influenced 
by those same structures. The style of colorblindness includes semantic moves and rhetorical shields. And a big one is the disclaimer, right? A disclaimer added to sentences to soften the impact and distance the speaker or author from what is being said or written. Socially, a popular one is a person prefacing a racist statement by saying, well, you know, I'm not a racist, but... Even though but is generally used to introduce a phrase or clause contrasting with what has already been mentioned, i.e. that they're about to say something racist. Another disclaimer is the answer, yes and no, when asked a yes or no question. I've had white friends experience cognitive dissonance regarding the trend in the entertainment industry to put in the call to audition that they are prioritizing non-white dancers over white dancers, saying things like, quote-unquote, persons of color are strongly encouraged to audition. I had a friend who did the old yes and no about this because on one hand, they felt that it was unfair to prioritize one race over another, that it should be based on the quality of the audition, but on the other hand, acknowledged that a racial disparity in hiring practices has existed in the entertainment industry for some time and is a problem. A disclaimer I catch myself saying a lot is, I don't know, after giving a statement that shows I really do know. Like when I say to Brill Barrett, director of the Mad Rhythms Tap Dance Company, that, you know, just because it's a vegan cake, Brill, doesn't mean that you have to eat it, but I don't know. Another disclaimer is when Brill Barrett says, you know, it's funny, right before saying something that is absolutely not funny. Like when he says, you know, it's funny. If you make one more cake joke, I'm going to put you out this window, which is, you know, not funny to me. Another tactic is the use of psychological projection, which can be used to manufacture empathy by the projection of personal experiences to understand someone else's subjective world. You see a homeless person on the street. You imagine what they must feel like, decide that you wouldn't like to feel that way, and you give them some money. Projection can also be used as a defense mechanism in which the ego defends itself against disowned and highly negative parts of the self by denying their existence and attributing them to others. Think about a person who suffers abuse in their home and then goes out and harasses other people. Or a man who is insecure in his masculinity, making fun of other men for not acting masculine enough. An example of projection regarding race is if a white person were to say justify a stance against affirmative action in hiring practices by saying that if they were black, they would be embarrassed to receive any position that, in their view, they did not earn. When what they are really saying is that they don't think it is fair for white people to not get jobs that, in their view, they did earn. Another common strategy is the use of what is known as dog whistles, using words like inner city and urban to describe black people, or by referring to all emigrants from Central and South America coming into the U.S. as illegals. Naturalization is the idea that things just happen for natural reasons, like explaining that racial segregation in housing occurs not because of racist practices like redlining and gerrymandering, but because people just, you know, like to be with their own kind. We just like, they just like to be with our own kind. That's not true. 
Cultural racism replaces biological racism, substituting culture-wide perceived moral failings instead of the now-debunked-by-science biological shortcomings. This is like when people attribute negative stereotypes to an entire race's culture, saying things like, they just have too many babies, or they just don't put as much emphasis on education. Two things that reality television has proven to not be racially exclusive. I think that cultural racism is closest to Jim Crow racism, and you still hear it from people like economist Thomas Sowell, who blames the humongous economic disparity faced by people in the U.S. on the culture of the people themselves. In particular, they're accepting assistance from welfare programs, saying that, quote, you cannot take any people of any color and exempt them from the requirements of civilization, including work, behavioral standards, personal responsibility, and all the other basic things that the clever intelligentsia disdain, without ruinous consequences to them and to society at large, end quote. Which ignores all of the obstacles that some people can face, like how living in a low-income neighborhood means that there is less taxable income to create and main services like public health care facilities, schools, and public transportation. Health, education, and getting there. Three things important for getting and maintaining a job. And Sowell doesn't think that people without money know how to behave themselves. So, so he can go shuffle off to Buffalo. And by Buffalo, I mean heck. And by shuffle off to, I mean go to there. If you know what I mean, and I think that you do. Minimization occurs when people try to downplay the negative aspects of race in society, like when someone answers the question, does racism still exist, with the answer, sure, but it's, it's much better now, which ignores the fact that less racism is still racism, and it's still bad. If someone ever said uh, that racism is better now, here's what you ask them. You ask them, better than what? Right? You ask them better than what? Is being shot better than being lynched? Are disproportionate prison sentences better than being lynched? What isn't better than being lynched? You see my point about that garbage argument. That it belongs in a garbage argument can and sent to a, a garbage argument dump. You know, a dump that contains garbage argument cans full of garbage arguments like, it's much better now. I think you get what I mean. The anti-abolitionists, right, in antebellum uh, United States, would use this tactic too, claiming that life was so much better for the enslaved Africans in the South, where they were provided shelter, food, and clothing in exchange for some white gardening, opposed to the black freemen in the North, who suffered from job insecurity and vagrancy. If you minimize all that other stuff the enslaved had to deal with, you know the violence and rape and family separations and murder, well, then it doesn't sound so bad. Worst of all is the use of abstract liberalism. And to understand what that is, we must first understand what liberalism is. Liberalism is at the core of modern thought in the U.S., politically, economically, and culturally and started as a response to feudalism, when people were mere extensions of the ruling aristocratic autocracy. According to economic philosopher John Gray in his 1987 book titled Liberalism, 
This humanist philosophy contains a set of distinctive features, and they are individualism, universalism, egalitarianism, and meliorism, the idea that people and institutions can be improved. Individual rights, justice for all, equality under the law, and building things bigger, faster, stronger. Doesn't that sound like America to you? Quick note, for all of you U.S. people who define a capital L liberal as some wishy-washy, hippy-dippy, Satan-worshipping beatnik, and say things like, we gotta own the libs! Where are they? We gotta own them! Over there! That means, politically speaking, your understanding of politics is at the level of, like, I don't know, a five-year-old, and you should consider perhaps growing up. If you're all about America, then you, too, are a liberal, picking yourself up by your own bootstraps, deciding your own destiny, deciding your own identity, the right to own firearms, and the right to unrestricted marriage. Anything that has to do with your freedom to do whatever, that's liberalism. Liberty comes from liberal. And if you don't believe me, perhaps you'll believe my two friends, Miriam and Webster. Abstract liberalism, then, is when the distinctive features of liberalism are flipped on their head and used to restrict the liberty of others. A famous example of abstract liberalism is in the U.S. Declaration of Independence, which states that we take to be self-evidently true that, quote, all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote. Since at the same time it was written, it did not apply to, quote-unquote, all men, denied to men of color and women of any color. That's the grand example of abstract liberalism, pretending that every person has the same opportunities and are treated equally when that has never really been true. Abstract liberalism can be used defensively to curtail the liberty of others. Take the social idea of personal space, in that in the U.S. you have a right to not have another person stand too close to you. Like, if you choose to walk mere inches behind another person on the sidewalk for no reason, expect to get pepper sprayed and expect nobody to care because stop walking so close to people, you perv. A person's liberty to walk wherever they want ends when they intrude upon another person's liberty to have personal space. Tap dancer Jason Samuels Smith has a great story about his encountering a lack of liberal space in the documentary Upaj, Improvise, about his time in India with Katak performer and Pundit Chitresh Das. Samuels Smith describes being jammed in a crowded line, uh, turns his head, and literally comes nose to nose with another person. J. Sam says, quote, Oh, you're here now, end quote. And the other person is just like, Yeah, I'm here now. And is unbothered by how close they are to each other. Because the concept of individual space was different for people in that area than it is in the United States. By the way, Upaj Improvise is rentable on Amazon Prime as of this recording, and I strongly recommend that you check it out. Take the aftermath of the landmark Supreme Court ruling in Brown v. Board of Education in 1954 that ended school segregation in the U.S., but at the same time caused the country to become even more segregated. Because under liberalism, you can't 
force white people to integrate. So a lot of them move to the suburbs, creating enclaves of whiteness or a white habitus, which Bonilla Silva describes as, quote, a racialized, uninterrupted socialization process that conditions and creates whites' racial taste, perceptions, feelings, and emotions, and their views on racial matters, end quote. It's very easy for white people to go through their lives having little to no meaningful interactions with non-white people. And without a diversity of opinions and cultures, people with a racist agenda can use abstract liberalism to undermine socially progressive rhetoric and anti-racist law in order to create and uphold a racist colorblind ideology. This is a big reason why people are clamoring for diversity in every walk of life. So when you hear some nonsense like so-and-so racial group is just lazy... You can look to your right and your left and all around and figure out that that's a load of BS chorus. But if you look around and at all the people you're looking at look like you, are raised in a similar environment as you, and saying the same things as the people you're listening to, well, why wouldn't you believe it? Now that we have a rudimentary understanding of the style of colorblindness, let's get back to Tapworks. An example of colorblindness can be found in the opening paragraph of Tapworks. And, like the Book of Tap, it starts right off tugging at the old patriotic pride, equating everything made in America with a sense of wholesomeness and goodness, saying that, quote, America has given births to many firsts. Minstrelsy, vaudeville, dance marathons, the Big Apple, radio, the Lindy, movies, TV, the Charleston, Ragtime, jazz music, jazz dance, and tap. All of them as American as apple pie. All of them made in the USA. End quote. Already we can see the minimization of race and the separation of minstrelsy from blackface makeup. Which is odd because that's kind of the most notable part about it. And yes, I am aware that there is non-blackface minstrelsy. Which means that they made up characters for every other race and ethnicity. <laughs> I dare you to add the words blackface to that paragraph and have it felt the same way. Also, the term American is often used to cover up race when white people don't want to acknowledge it. The same semantic move as mentioned by my often cited source, Black Music by Amiri Baraka, where he writes that once white musicians started appropriating black music that, quote, the success of this appropriation signaled the existence of an American music where before there was a Negro music, end quote. Fletcher asks, quote, But why here? Why not Europe, Australia, or the Orient? What special set of circumstances was needed to produce such a myriad of contributions that would be seen and imitated throughout the world, end quote. Fletcher answers with, quote, Historically, we know that one major factor lies in the 17th century, when large groups of people left England and migrated to America. They came in search of a new land and a new home, one as yet unpolluted by years of war, politics, and finances, a country open to the ideas of freedom and individual choice, end quote. Tell that to the Native Americans that were already living here, who already had a complex system of nation-states with their own wars, and their own political and religious culture. This is an example of obvious abstract liberalism, describing the benefits of liberty in an abstract and decontextualized way, 
in this case, ignoring the lack of liberty experienced by the Native Americans. Remember, this book was published in the late 90s, early 2000s, and to hear pre-colonized North America described as a land unpolluted by years of war, politics, and finance is weird, because Native American rights and history are not a new concept. Heck, we've been dealing with decolonizing our U.S. sports teams since the 1970s, so even the person who watches nothing but sports is aware that the Native Americans got and continue to get a bad rap. Fletcher, describing the arrival of enslaved Africans to the U.S., writes, quote, Concurrently, there was another great exodus, this one from Africa, not filled with the anticipation and exhilaration of the first. These people came unwillingly. They were sold into slavery, some by their own, most by profiteering slave traders. They were heading for an unknown destination and for a future that was out of their control. Yet, their coming contributed to the growth of dance and the birth of tap in this country. End quote. That statement directly conflicts with the statement she just wrote about colonial North America as a, a country open to the ideas of freedom and individual choice. Fletcher defines the transatlantic slave voyage as an Exodus, which, to my understanding, is best known from the Bible, particularly the book of Exodus, where Moses leads the Israelites away from their enslavement at the hands of the Pharaoh. Secularly, the word Exodus refers to people emigrating from somewhere, not being forcefully imported, literally the opposite of how it is used in tap works. Fletcher again minimizes the slave trade by describing the transatlantic voyage as being not filled with the anticipation and exhilaration of the European emigrants' voyage. Which is true, but that's a weird way to write it. By using words in opposition to what she means, like anticipation and exhilaration, even in a negative sense, still sounds positive. Instead of not anticipation and not exhilaration, why not just say a journey filled with apprehension and dread or maybe i'm splitting hairs here that's that's possible and i do see what she is going for i just don't like it i am confused why fletcher would write that quote these people the africans came unwillingly they were sold into slavery some by their own most by profiteering slave traders end quote came unwillingly and sold into slavery are the same thing and who else is sl trading slaves but slave traders? So what is the point of mentioning that some enslaved Africans were quote-unquote sold by their own? No, they were not, as it was generally kings and wealthy merchants on the west coast of Africa, the wealthy elite who were capturing and selling people. Just saying some by their own makes it sound like it was neighbor selling neighbors when it was more common that the enslaver and the enslaved belonged to separate economic, social, and cultural groups. Never mind that the wealthy caste could only do this because Europeans created a new market in the first place, one that had never existed and radically changed the economic landscape on the African continent. But it's true, some people will still say. Africans did sell other Africans into slavery. I know that, but when somebody says that, the context behind it is incredibly important. 
because not mentioning any context is a popular tactic and dog whistle among white supremacists and white nationalists. I do not recommend that you do this, but if you search for the word Africans in the forums of the white nationalist website stormfront.org, you will read things like this chipper entry by username Arian Christian, (laughs) who writes that, quote, white people don't have to feel guilty for participating in a market that was globally acceptable and for doing business with black Africans, end quote. Another contributor to the site, describing themselves as pro-truth and pro-white, writes that, quote, always remember the myth that whites are uniquely guilty of slavery really means and what it is being weaponized as. Slavery, an instrument of white guilt, end quote. In a long post titled 101 Negro Facts, which has zero facts in it, author Nordic Heathen Vinlander, <laughs> that's a stupid name, writes that, quote, Negroes invented slavery, and that is an indisputable fact. They have an inner need to find something that is below them, and they have fulfilled this need by capturing and slaving other of their... Okay, end that quote because that is quite enough. Those are just three of many examples where you can see the same fact being used to justify three different and false narratives about the transatlantic slave trade. Am I accusing Fletcher of being in line with these bigots? Absolutely not. But I am accusing her of using the same style of language as they do. And I am also saying that by repeating phrases like Africans sold Africans, devoid of any context is one way to maintain a colorblind, laissez-faire, white supremacist view of history. Fletcher uses a rhetorical deflector when she writes that, quote, They were heading for an unknown destination and for a future that was out of their control. Yet, their coming contributed to the growth of dance and the birth of tap in this country, end quote. I may be nitpicking again, but using yet as a conjunction, like using but, implies contrast. Like saying, I'm not a racist, but... Which makes these two sentences that Fletcher wrote mean something like, Slavery is horrible, but at least we got tap dance out of it. Like, there's a bad thing, but at least we got a good thing out of it, which is another example of minimizing the effects of slavery. Fletcher wraps up her introduction by using another phrase, doused in abstract liberalism, writing that, quote, All of these races and nationalities brought with them not only their belongings, but also their traditions, customs, and beliefs. America was to become a cocoon for the preservation of the old and a melting pot for the preservation of the new, end quote. Saying that all of these newcomers got to retain their traditions, customs, and beliefs is total hogwash because not only did the enslaved Africans not get to keep their beliefs, but were aggressively Christianized as a means to justify slavery. As one anti-abolitionist writer put it, quote, Religion in the masters destroys everything in slavery, which makes it obnoxious. And not only so, it converts the relation of the slave into an effectual means of happiness. End quote. Furthermore, African Americans did not get to keep their traditions and customs, either, as noted by Fletcher herself when she writes later about the slave laws of 1740, which we will talk about, trust me, which shows how the enslaved got their culture 
taken away from them, not once, but over and over again. How someone can end an introduction to slavery by saying that the enslaved lived in a cocoon of preservation is like an abstraction of abstract liberalism. I know we're really fine-tooth combing this text, but that's the idea, that the colorblind rhetoric is hardwired in and that you have to dissect it and dig it out. This entire introduction could have been trimmed down to three sentences, if I may. Quote, Ting myself. In the 17th century, European settlers traveled to the New World in search of religious freedom, an exodus filled with anticipation and exhilaration. Concurrently, Africans who were sold into slavery embarked on a journey filled with apprehension and dread. It was from these two cultures' contributions that led to the birth of tap dance in this country. End quote of myself. That's it. Everything else is just rhetorical window dressing. Following the introduction, Fletcher begins her tap timeline at the 1607 settlement at Jamestown by the Calvinists and mentions the arrival of the Puritans in 1620. There is no mention of the arrival of Africans on the continent. What follows is a super detailed rundown of various European countries' song and dance and references the class contributions of the wealthy and working classes of France, England, Scotland, Ireland, Germany, Poland, Wales, and the Netherlands, even mentioning the names of their social dances, the meters they are in, the effects of religion on them, all sorts of good stuff. African dance is mentioned, but all that is said about it in this section is that it, quote-unquote, defied description, which... No, it didn't, because the next section is all about describing African dance. The section titled African Heritage begins with, quote, Agnes DeMille, in her book America Dances, states that in the 1600s and 1700s, more than 8 million slaves were brought to the shores of America, end quote. Which is not even close to true. The number of enslaved Africans that were brought to the United States is closer to 400,000 because it was much cheaper for slave owners to claim ownership of the children of the enslaved. Why pay the cost of importing new slaves when you can breed the ones that you have for much cheaper? 90% of enslaved Africans were transported to the Caribbean and Latin America. So you could say that they were sent to the Americas, but that's not what was said. Even the number 8 million, unless the figures have changed from 2002 to the present, is inaccurate, with the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database on SlaveVoyages.org putting the number at approximately 12.5 million who were enslaved and 10.5 million who survived the voyage. Fletcher relies heavily on the book America Dances by dancer-choreographer Agnes DeMille for her dance history and tap works, which in my opinion, was a poor choice. As described by a reviewer in a 1981 issue of the Christian Science Monitor, quote, The problem with the book is the lack of accuracy. DeMille has been ill-used by her editor and research assistant, whom she mentions in the acknowledgments. The list of misspelled names spans the centuries, with mistakes in crucial dates. The historical chronology which precedes the text cannot be trusted. End quote. Furthermore, DeMille says some pretty racist stuff in America Dances. 
referring to white people copying black vernacular dance trends as following a cult and laments that black vernacular dance was autoerotic, without discipline, manner, or style, calling it the dancing of fear, and laments that the focus of popular dance in the 1970s and 1980s is on the black continent and not in our white heritage. Which makes it odd that Fletcher, who supposedly read this part in DeMille's book, would use the word heritage in her title for the part on African dance. I don't want to get into conspiracy theory territory here, but it is an odd coincidence that Fletcher would begin the section on African heritage with with a source who uses the phrase white heritage in the section that Fletcher is referencing. I'm, but, you know. Ah. Fletcher describes the dancing of Africans in a pluralistic way, saying that, quote, the African people came from many territories and settlements, some extremely isolated, others heavily populated. Most African communities, except for large cities, developed independently of each other, and although their dances contained great similarities, they also bore noticeable differences, end quote. What follows is a detailed description of six observable traits common in the dance styles of different African ethnicities. Foot stomping, centrifugal movement, references to animals, improvisation, posture, and swing rhythm. If you've listened to the other parts of this series, then you will know that I can't stand Africa being treated as a country because it is so huge and diverse, you see. And I get especially livid when the African contributions to tap dance are boiled down to African steps. African steps. I hate it. So add some points to tap works for not treating Africa like a monolith. But, well, something feels a little familiar here. Uh, I think I know what it is. Fletcher is citing the Stearns' book, Jazz Dance, which is listed on her citations page, and her descriptions of African aesthetics in dance is copied near verbatim in Tapworks. Jazz Dance has six descriptions of African dance. Tapworks has six descriptions, and they are the same six in the exact same order, but paraphrased to be a little bit shorter. I know that everyone quotes Jazz Dance, okay? And Fletcher is upfront about it in the book. But what about Where in Africa? Remember, Fletcher gave us details on eight different European countries and two different religions. But there is no mention of any African ethnicities or countries, just that there are some. She could have named countries like Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Daomi, now Benin, or Congo, which wouldn't have been hard to do because I also got those names of African countries from the same chapter of Jazz Dance. You just have to flip the page back. Fletcher ends the section on African dance by writing, quote, Unfortunately, through the years, the white man would perceive the blacks as being all the same, regardless of their territorial heritage, their final point of residence in the United States, their occupation, or their social status, end quote. Which, yes, I agree, except that it kind of highlights how unequal both the histories are in Tapworks, despite them really trying to be. To her credit, Fletcher goes into much more detail about the transatlantic slave trade than other instructional-type books that I have read. 
Fletcher provides information on the wide distribution of the enslaved Africans in not only the United States, but also South America, Cuba, and the West Indies, and parts of the Caribbean. Which makes that goof from earlier feel even more like a where's the editor moment. There is mention of the varying degrees of cultural miscegenation that occurred in big cities, on rural plantations, and through the mixed-race freight haulers and dock workers found on such waterways as the Erie Canal. Fletcher also contrasts antebellum race relations of U.S. citizens in the North and South, stating that racial blending happened much slower in the North due to greater segregation, and that African characteristics in dance were better maintained in the South. These are all true and are excellent points, and I mention them because I do want to stress that Tapworks is head over heels more progressive than earlier tap dance instructional books. She even mentions the African roots of the banjo, so 10 points for that. See, there's even something that tap dancer Jabo and Dixon would like, and that's saying something. But again, we come across another error, this one regarding the Stono Slave Insurrection and the legislation that resulted from it. Fletcher writes, quote, The year 1740 saw the infamous slave law enacted in Stono, Virginia. End quote. The slave law of 1740 was not enacted in Stono, Virginia, because there is no Stono, Virginia. <laughs> the slave law of 1740 was enacted in South Carolina, following the Stono Rebellion, also called the Cato Conspiracy that occurred in 1739 and also in South Carolina. Fletcher confuses the law with the event, drops one of the dates, and completely goofs on the state. The 1739 rebellion and the 1740 slave law of South Carolina are two of the most important historical landmarks in tap dance history, nay, U.S. American history, and I am at a loss to explain how over two editions... No one thought to check the details on this one. Listeners of the Gasps podcast will recognize this next part as being one of my least favorite tap dance history tropes, the happy slave ship dancers theory. Fletcher writes of the transatlantic voyage of the enslaved Africans that, quote, the passage to America was arduous, appalling, and cruel often taking four to six months to accomplish. The men were kept below deck, while the women were allowed to roam freely, thus becoming easy prey for the ship's officers and crew, end quote. Yes, that is accurate. I agree. Fletcher describes the voyage using words like arduous and cruel, and words not like not arduous and not cruel. <laughs> and alludes to the sexual abuse and rape that the enslaved women faced. Then Fletcher writes that, quote, if there was any redeeming feature to this journey, end quote, because I gotta stop there, there's no redeeming the value to this transatlantic slave voyage, dancing or no dancing. It has not been and will never be redeemed. Take Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, for example. By the way, spoilers. Their story is a tragedy and ends with their double suicide. It's just sad. 
great writing, but there is no, well, but at least they, there's nothing like that. The story is tragic, and then it ends, and a new story begins, I guess. But there is no redemption for these characters and their antagonist families. Some stories in Tap Dance are tragedies, and that's okay. Tap Dance can be sad, poignant, and mature without being bad. And for me, personally, that is the best tap dance. This is another example of the contradicting, confusing, and ambivalent rhetoric that Benia Silva warned us about. A section that begins with people getting raped, immediately followed by a nice disclaimer. Followed by what I can only call a redemption arc for the slave voyage. Fletcher writes, quote, If there were any redeeming value to the transatlantic slave voyage, it could be the following event. To keep the captives healthy, they were brought to the top deck and exercised before the ship's personnel, which, in reality, meant that they performed their native dances, accompanied by the beating out of rhythms on an overturned bucket, end quote. Excuse me, in reality? What reality? <laughs> Certainly not this one. This sentence is misleading, and I find the use of the term in reality, when describing the dancing on the slave ships as especially heinous, because in reality, the term dancing the slaves was used as a euphemism for many different forms of exercise, ranging from free dance to basic calisthenics, to just moving around while still in iron fetters, which would cut into their ankles and wrists, making movement painful, spurred on by lashes from the cat nine tails, in reality, it was all those things, too. And this sentence in Tapworks not only ignores that data, despite it being present in some of the sources in her bibliography, and actively seeks to cover it up. Fletcher continues, saying that, quote, Likewise, the ship's personnel exercised by performing their country, step, and folk dances along with their favorite jigs, reels, and flings. Thus, in the middle of an ocean, and perhaps for the very first time, these two groups, each with a totally different perspective of dance, caught a fleeting glimpse of the other's heritage. The crew witnessed undulating bodies in a crouched position performing unbelievable feats of acrobatics and spontaneity, while the slaves, amazed, heard percussive sounds emanating from the feet of men who danced in an upright almost static position, end quote. Fletcher ends this statement with an exclamation, saying, quote, what a marvelous moment for all, end quote. Here's my question. Where is Fletcher getting all of this dance description from? I look for this stuff. The Harold Washington Library in downtown Chicago is pretty darn big, and I have yet to find such luscious and supple descriptions of the dancing aboard the slave ships. I could not find every source in Fletcher's bibliography, but I've been through the grittier ones, like Black Dance in the United States from 1619 to 1970 by Lynn Fawley Emery, which does contain descriptions of dancing aboard slave ships from people who were supposedly there. Emery's book is the one that I used to criticize Jim Siegelman for not using when he wrote The Book of Tap in 1977, but here Fletcher does list it as a source. And it contradicts her entire ship-dancing narrative. The flesh-tearing ankle shackles that I mentioned before? I read that first in Emery's book, 
which means that either Fletcher pulls another DeMille in that she either read the book and chose to ignore the lash in favor of unbelievable feats of gymnastics, or she didn't read the whole book and just cherry-picked through it. To put this into perspective, all that the Stearnses wrote about dancing on slave ships is that it happened. So how do we get to undulating bodies and the slaves hearing percussive sounds coming from the jig-dancing sailors? If someone knows where to find these descriptions, please let me know. I will immediately change my tune and detract this whole statement. But I am of the conclusion this entire scenario is comprised completely from Fletcher's imagination. But step back a moment, because this may not be as malicious as it appears, and instead may be an example of another tool of racial colorblindness, that of psychological projection. The concept of projection was developed by Sigmund Freud, who, during his sessions with patients, noticed that they would sometimes accuse others of having the same feelings that they themselves were demonstrating, and that by engaging in this behavior, the patient was better able to deal with the emotions he or she was experiencing. As Siegelman observed from the interviews that he conducted for the Book of Tap, happiness is a key factor for a lot of people in their relationship to not only tap dance, but also the image of the United States. Is it morally wrong to wish that the enslaved Africans were going on an exodus instead of being victims of a kidnapping? And is it wrong to wish that there were marvelous moments for all in the middle of the Atlantic? Technically, no. It's not morally wrong to wish that these people had better lives. It's a sign of sympathy and maybe a little bit of empathy, as Fletcher's vivid descriptions sound like she is right there watching it. And it may have been impossible for her to go there mentally without putting a positive spin on these events. No, not morally wrong, but another colorblind whitewashing of history. If you know your tap dance history, then you probably know where we're going next. Fletcher premises her section of five points by writing immediately after the slave ship dancing reenactment that, quote, strangely enough, a similar incident would take place many years later in a dwelling called the Old Tenement House in New York City, but on this occasion, it would occur between the freed slaves and the Irish, end quote. This is not accurate. Fletcher is writing about New York City between roughly 1830 to 1870, and during this time, the black population of the urban Northeast was made up of mostly free black people, who were never enslaved, and former slaves who had escaped slavery but were never technically freed. In fact, in 1850, the fugitive slave laws, which promoted the capture and return of runaway enslaved peoples, was passed smack dab in the middle of this period, so freed slaves would have been an even shorter supply. Fletcher cites her source for this section on five points as the book Five Points, the 19th century New York City neighborhood that invented tap dance stole elections, and became the world's most notorious slum by historian Tyler Anbinder. You know, that book that you see referenced in every book about tap dance since 2001 and that you meant to read but never got around to? Yeah, it's that book. You probably did what most people did and just read the six pages in the book that is actually about Juba and tap dancing. 
and skip the rest. Because that's all the book, you know, the book with the subtitle that invented tap dancing says about tap dancing, about six pages. Fletcher writes about the impoverished Irish immigrants fleeing the potato famine of 1845, saying that, quote, many took up residence in a rather ancient and somewhat decrepit structure known as the old tenement house or the old brewery, end quote. And also says that, quote, also residing in this building were an almost equal number of black families who enjoyed the same pastime and, unfortunately, the same poverty, end quote. The almost equal number of black families living in the old brewery building is the only statistic on the racial makeup of the population of five points by Fletcher and, while possibly true, is also misleading. As Ann Binder describes it, the old brewery was the worst place to live in five points and only the poorest of the poor lived there. Rooms could be as crowded as six to 16 people per windowless pitch black apartment and never once mentions any dancing taking place within it. Also, the population living in the old brewery building, while the structure was very large, represented a relatively small percentage of the population of Five Points as a whole, and wasn't even around that long into the period, being demolished in 1852. In Five Points, Ann Binder makes it clear that while the neighborhood experienced unprecedented levels of racial mixing, was still heavily segregated and that black people made up a very small percentage of the residents. In Chapter 2, Ann Binder reports that the Five Points African-American population in 1825 was 14%, but by 1855 was down to 4%, even if the census takers miscounted by half that number, it still does not resemble the almost equal number of black families as stated by Fletcher. Furthermore, Ann Binder writes in Chapter 3 that Quote, racial segregation in five points was even more pronounced than ethnic clustering. Those African Americans who remained in five points tended to live in all black tenements, end quote. And that, quote, in 78% of the tenements, one ethnic group made up 75% or more of the inhabitants, end quote. The reason that the African American population was so low is because of a series of race riots consisting of mostly Irish laborers from ethnically exclusive labor unions who tried to drive out the black residents. The concern of the Irish union workers was that black residents would act as scabs if their unions went on strike for better working conditions, which was true. The black residents would absolutely do that, but only because black people weren't allowed in those same ethnically exclusive labor unions and were forced to take the jobs that the Irish workers said were too crummy for them to do. If they had only realized their own common interests and combined their forces, then we could have realized the value of the labor and... Ah, yeah. Hashtag Marx was right. Fletcher writes of the immigrant Irish and native-born black residents that, quote, eventually, the two groups met and from then on spent evening after evening watching the other perform dances of their origin, a scene reminiscent of those days in the mid-Atlantic, in which the slaves and the crew indulged in the same pastime. This time, however, it was voluntary, end quote. Is that what the enslaved Africans were doing on the ships, indulging themselves? How marvelous were the moments if they weren't voluntary. 
The racial mixing in Five Points, according to Ann Binder, was in the black-owned dance halls near the Cowbay cul-de-sac, where the majority of black residents lived. In small basements packed to the gills, people sat in a round, shoulder-to-shoulder, as dancers and musicians danced and played in the middle of the room, or in places like All Max, later Pete Williams' place, after, named after the owner, a more upscale establishment where Charles Dickens visited and wrote about in his 1842 book, American Notes. So, no, most of the racial mixing in Five Points was not done residentially, as Fletcher suggests, but by white people traveling to the black area of town, checking it out, and then going back to where they came from. And conforms close to the process of cultural appropriation that usually follows white Americans borrowing from black American culture and offers insight on why, instead of integrated 50-50 black Irish dancing troops, we got racially segregated blackface minstrelsy instead. There is a difference, and that difference is obscured by Fletcher's text, which ignores pretty much everything in the Five Points book it uses as a reference, except for the name of the old brewery, (laughs) to make this point of intense racial strife appear amiable. This is yet another instance of abstract liberalism, the idea that just because these people lived close to each other that they respected each other's liberal right to happiness instead of what actually happened, some cultural mixing bookended by two anti-black pro-slavery race riots. The dancer whom Dickens describes in American Notes at All Max in Five Points is believed to be the oft-considered prototype of the modern-day tap dancer William Henry Lane. I must warn you, Lane gets done dirty in tap works. I had to read this paragraph multiple times to make sure I wasn't seeing things. That's how bad these mistakes are. Fletcher writes about Lane that, quote, In the early 1840s appeared a young black male, William Henry Lane, professionally known as Juba. He would come to be known as the greatest dancer of his time. A 19-year-old freeborn slave from Providence, Rhode Island, he would long be remembered as the greatest dancer of his time. Lane had studied with an Irishman, William Lowe, a master of the jig, end quote. First, the phrase greatest dancer of his time is repeated twice in two sentences. Where's the editor? Second, no, William Henry Lane was not a freeborn slave because he was born free and never enslaved. Fletcher appears to be making the mistake of using the word slave interchangeably with black or African-American again, possibly forgetting that not all black people in the United States at the time were enslaved. Third, no, the man who supposedly taught Juba to dance was not an Irishman. William Lowe was a black man with an Irish name because... My guess is, he was owned by an Irish slave owner who named him after himself, because not all of the Irish were poor, you see. But that is my own guess, and I have no source for it. So, grain of salt. Fletcher then writes that, quote, He never lived long enough to fully understand the extent of his fame. He died in London in 1872, end quote. No, Lane did not die in 1872, but it is believed in 1852 in London. This one seems like a legitimate typo that an editor could have corrected. 
in the second edition, where were you, the editor? Fletcher gets hypothetical regarding the appeal of minstrel shows, and it is here that a colorblind ideology is at its most obvious. Quote, why were these shows so appealing? End quote, asks Fletcher, who answers her own question with three guesses. The first one is that, quote, some felt that Daddy Rice's characterization of the black man coincided with the viewpoint held by most whites that blacks were sometimes devil-may-care, smart-talking, and gaudily dressed. At other times, they were viewed as lazy and lackadaisical, childlike and irresponsible, but always fun-loving, good-humored, and had a gift for music, dance, and song, end quote. And? Okay, so, in other words... Blackface minstrels reinforced racial stereotypes about black people that were held by white people. But that doesn't answer the question that Fletcher asks of why these shows were so appealing. Why are working class white people spending what little money they have to reinforce black stereotypes of inferiority? Well, the answer is to reinforce their position in the racial caste system of the U.S. with black on the bottom. That would be the context of why, and Fletcher merely listing a string of racist stereotypes without any conclusion attached to it is a little disconcerting to me. Fletcher's second guess regarding the appeal of blackface minstrelsy is psychological and practical, saying, quote, Still others felt that America was open to non-serious entertainment after experiencing the hard colonial years and that the transportation and communication systems were developed sufficiently to support this idea, end quote. The transportation part is a fact, with musicologist Christopher J. Smith in an essay titled Blacks and Irish on the River Rhine Frontiers, the Roots of American Popular Music, going so far as to say that, quote, place, particularly the boundary spaces of maritime and riverine environments on the southern and western frontiers of antebellum North America, was a key element in shaping the Anglo-Irish-African-American cultural collaboration that made blackface minstrelsy possible. End quote. The second one obscures the who and applies a rhetorical shield, replacing white people with America to soften the blow. Ooh, that colorblindness is a slippery bugger. The third guess as to why minstrelsy is where liberalism goes into overdrive. As Fletcher writes, quote, Some pointed to the fact that the 19th century saw a falling apart of the social molds and principles that had existed, giving way to an emergence of the individual and his right to free expression and thinking, end quote. This is basically the definition of Jacksonian-era liberalism. Control over your own destiny. Individual autonomy. Free speech and expression. For white people. Everything that blackface wasn't for black people in the antebellum U.S. America. And conflicts with Fletcher's first reason about minstrelsy being used as a tool of oppression. At least what I think that she is saying just by mentioning the stereotypes. This is an example of an abstract liberalism so obvious to speak of oppression in sentence one and individual freedom in sentence four to describe the exact same thing. It's a little embarrassing to feel the need to explain it at all. 
Fletcher finishes her Why Minstrelsy section with the conclusion that, quote, for whatever reasons, minstrelsy would provide a place where the African-American style of song and dance would forever be a part of American culture, end quote. I'm not sure why Fletcher would add the disclaimer for whatever reasons, other than as a rhetorical deflection, because all the reasons that she gave were 100% true. She spreads them out and makes it seem like they are three separate streams of thought, but no, they are not. The first one gives us a who and a what. Working class white people and they're securing their place in a racialized caste system. The second gives us a why and a where that people were stressed out and that it was all over the place. And the third reason gives us the how. White men, emboldened by liberal individualism, had the liberty to decide how black people would be portrayed. Why would anyone need to write for whatever reasons after listing all the non-conflicting reasons for something? This entire section does not make any sense and is an example of some pretty bad logic. The conclusion is that, through blackface minstrelsy, African-American song and dance would become a part of American culture. And minstrelsy did this by, one, promoting false stereotypes, two, transporting these false stereotypes across the country, and three, because the people doing it had freedom of expression. Huh? How do any of those account for real black culture and its propagation in the nation? Yes, black people in post-bellum U.S. America performed blackface minstrel shows, once allowed to. But it's that third reason of liberality that provides the evidence that it is not black minstrels who Fletcher is writing about, because the lack of liberty for non-white people in the U.S. from 17th century to 1940 is not up for debate. Thomas Rice wasn't black. Stephen Foster wasn't black. Fletcher could have said how black song and dance influenced these white minstrels and thus American culture, but in true colorblind fashion, she confuses the song and dance created by white people based on African American culture with actual African American culture. It must be said, though, that if Fletcher's biggest crime is filling in the historical potholes with a substance of her own concoction, well, then add her to the list titled Every Author of Tap Dance History Ever. It's why I'm afraid to write a brief tap dance history because every time I start, I already see some form of bias and have to start all over. I swear, someone gave me a down payment to write a history of tap dance and it's been like like a year and a half and I've started it 20 times. I think it's time to give them their money back. <laughs> but I'm so afraid because like my bias just comes out. It's really crazy. If you want to see how biased you are, I suggest writing your own history of tap dance and wow, will you really get some self-loathing out of that. The history post-minstrelsy in tap works is much stronger. There is even a little tap dance philosophy in the text. And Fletcher, describing a tap dancer's relationship to music, writes that, quote, as the tap vocabulary increased, the dancer would consider himself a musician, countering the music, adding fullness to a bass section, or syncopating a break. He was part of the music, end quote. And Fletcher drives the point home by writing that, quote, 
The motion picture tap probably best expresses this philosophy of a traditional tapper. The involvement they had with each other, the music, the challenges, the dedication, and the art, end quote. For a tap dance philosophy, that ain't bad. I agree with Fletcher on this one, 100 points. Fletcher also refers to the Theater Owners Booking Association, the company that iniquitously managed Black Vaudeville, by its vernacular slang name, Tough on Black Asses. She writes the word asses. Woo! We did it! So I'm going to give her 10, no, a hun, no, give her a thousand bonus points for that one. <laughs> asses. One complaint that I have with Fletcher's history of tap dance from the 1960s to the 1980s is that it too closely mirrors Siegelman's history in the Book of Tap, which is first in her bibliography, but only because it lists the one of the author's aims first by his last name and its alphabetical order. But it hits the same landmarks as the Book of Tap. It gets, I mean, you go Esther, Kelly, No, No, Nanette, but to be fair, those are the landmarks that every short history of tap kind of has to use. But the paragraph on Morton Gould and his composition, The Tap Dance Concerto, performed by Paul Draper and later Michael Domenico, is so similar to the Book of Taps version that it feels like another light paraphrasing, the same as her borrowing from Jazz Dance and from DeMille. Keeping with this show's namesake, I got excited to find that Fletcher provides four reasons for the decline in the popularity of tap dance in the mid-20th century, writing that, quote, Some believed that the expense of producing musicals in Hollywood or on the Broadway stage had become astronomical, end quote. Yes, costs of producing shows with tap had become expensive, and in the Book of Tap, a quote by Fred Kelly, brother of Gene blames the extra union costs associated with hiring extra personnel to capably record both the visual and sound of tap dance. Fletcher continues, saying that, quote, others felt that tap had failed to change with the times. Still others said that it had no performance arenas in which to learn or to experiment, end quote. I agree that tap dance failed to change with the times, but Fletcher never says why. My personal theory that I express in episode one of this podcast is probably not what Fletcher has in mind. On the idea that there was less venues producing work for tap dancers, yes, I agree with that one, too. Fletcher concludes by saying, quote, It was also suggested that tap technique had never reached its full potential, that it had ignored the classics as well as the concert stage. And finally, that the music of the period did not allow the tap dancer to tap, but merely to stylize. Whatever the reasons might be, the local dancing teacher has never lost sight of its worth or potential. Whether tap is doing well on the screen or on the stage, the younger dancer and the advanced student will always find the studio door open and class in session. End quote. That it was the music of the time, I disagree with that. But people do say that. Fletcher's assertion that tap technique had never reached its full potential is a baffling one for me because the author is clearly aware of dancers like John Bubbles, Jimmy Slide, and Gregory Hines 
because she writes about them in her book. <laughs> I'm even more dumbfounded by what she means when saying that tap dancers were ignoring the classics. What, was, what are the classics? Does she mean Fred Astaire? Or ballet? Or the sacred and tolerated dances of the Calvinists? What does Fletcher mean by the classics? Well, the classics are another dog whistle for obviously something. I'm guessing that she means those 1930s and 1940s era movies. But avoid saying that by replacing them with the classics. Of course, my real question is, who is saying these things? It matters because if it's, you know, Gregory Hines saying that tap never technically reached its potential, well, I would be intrigued as to why he would think that. If it's Agnes DeMille, well, then I know why she is saying that. As Fletcher did in her justification of minstrelsy, she ends an offensive comment with, whatever the reasons, again deflecting and shielding herself, her peers, and her idols. I'm guessing that's who these sums and others are. She's saving them from having any of these opinions attributed to them. Why list reasons and then say that you are not sure of the reasons? Again, it is all of these reasons. Popular tastes were changing. There was less exposure for tap dance. White people preferred the old movie tap, blended with European ballet and ballroom and, and only light black vernacular dance, over the bebop-style dancing emerging in the late 1940s. On the final page, Fletcher mentions a number of books and documentaries that people can check out about tap. A rundown of new shows, including Heinz and Jelly's Last Jam, My One and Only, Glover and Bring in the Noise, Bring in the Funk, and lists several burgeoning tap dance companies without including her own company, AmTap, which is a super classy move, if you ask me. The final paragraph in Tapworks is another head-scratcher and is very funny until you think about it, and then it is much less funny. Fletcher writes, quote, We see on stage today that history does repeat itself. Tap Dogs displays traditional flat-footed tap from its African roots, while Riverdance reintroduces us to the look and feel of the Irish jig, end quote. And just like that, tap dance is once again described as a combination of African steps and European feeling. Listen, I like Tap Dogs. It's a great and important show, and I am a fan, but there is nothing that makes it any more African than any other tap dance show, unless denim short shorts originally came from the, the Bale people in the Cote d'Ivoire or something, but I'm pretty sure they didn't. And for the love of Michael Flatley, Fletcher just mentioned noise funk, yet chose tap dogs as upholding the lineage of African dance, SM my darn H. As for Riverdance, I don't even think that they would agree with being labeled as the feel for tap dance. In fact, don't they credit the feel to black American dancers in their own show? Brill Barrett, a producer of Gasps, Cake Lover, and former touring cast member of Riverdance, recently spoke about what Riverdance thinks about TAP on his Either And podcast. 
For those who've not seen Riverdance, there is a scene that finds two white Irish dancers, new to the U.S., running into two black native-born dancers on the streets of a large northern metropole. The four dancers square off at first, but then start to dig what the other is doing, and then... Well, I'll let Brill Barrett explain the rest. I was in Riverdance, and I tell this story all the time. And Riverdance was the Irish experience told from the Irish peoples. And so there's no reason for me to not believe what they poured their money and resources into creating to tell their story. It's nobody else telling their story. And in the story of Riverdance, they talk about the lives they were living in Ireland. They talk about the persecution that they endured, why they left Ireland. They talk about when they got to America, how they were treated. You know, Irish immigrants alone weren't treated as white people for a long time. They were other and they were treated not nicely. But those poor Irish immigrants moved into whatever they could afford, which was usually poor communities where black people were already living. It's very interesting when you look at the story that they told and they say, when we got to America, we met these black tap dancers or we met these black people and these black people did this thing called tap dance. That's from the Irish point of view. But when we tell the story in America and you know, there's gotta be a different reason the story has changed. They like to say the Irish created or a part of the creation or the origin story of tap. And if you ask anybody in Ireland, or any historians, like I had a guy send me all these clips of newspaper articles from the 1800s about uh, Master Juba, who's the first known tap dancer. And so right there, the Irish, the Irish folks say they black people in America were tap dancing when we got there. The conclusion of Tap Works again pulls at the old patriotic pride and begins with a quote from a famous tap dancer writing that, quote, tap dance is the tempo of America, said Steve Condos. So to move forward, we must concentrate on the knowledge of the past and have creativity and imagination for the future. Tap is not only an American invention, it's an American heritage, end quote. And I could not agree more. Tap dance is the heritage of the U.S., but I'm betting that I mean it in a different way than Fletcher. At this point, you are probably asking yourself, is he calling Beverly Fletcher a racist? The answer to that is that I cannot answer that question because in the new post-civil rights era, society has already been racialized to the point where we are all affected by it. I don't know much about where Fletcher grew up, and if she spent much of her formative years in the northeast of the U.S., the chance that she grew up in a white habitus, is highly likely. If that is the case, then it only makes sense that she would have internalized the rhetoric of a colorblind ideology. It's unavoidable, because it was force-fed to her, to me, to all of us, on a continual basis, ever since the ostensible end of the Jim Crow laws. Colorblindness was formulated by U.S. politicians in the 1970s, using what is called the Southern Strategy, which is best explained in a very famous interview from 1981 conducted by political scientist Alexander Lamus, where he interviews prominent political consultant Lee Atwater, who at the time was working for the Ronald Reagan presidential campaign, 
and later for the presidential campaign of George H.W. Bush and was helping them figure out how to talk about race and politics without talking about race in politics. They both win, by the way. How do I know this? Well, because Atwater told us. And here is him doing that. Warning, this clip contains explicit language that should be offensive to all listeners. You have been warned. Here's how I would approach that issue as a, as a statistician or a political scientist. No, as a psychologist, which I'm not. Is, is how abstract you, you handle the race thing. In other words, you start out and you know, now y'all aren't quoting me. You start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigger. That hurts your backfire. So you say stuff like uh, force busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now. You're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things. And the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. And subconsciously, maybe that is part of it. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if it is getting that abstract and that coded, uh, that, that, we, that we're doing away with the racial problem one way or the other. Uh, you follow me? Because obviously sitting around saying uh, we want to cut taxes, we want to cut this, and we want is much more abstract than, than even the busing thing. Uh, and a hell of a lot more abstract than never knew. You know. So I, any way you look at it, race is coming on the back burner. And that's the world that we've been living in, being lied to and manipulated by the very people that we vote into power so that they can lie to us some more. Living in this environment can really mess with people's heads. And as an example, I'd like to tell you about a friend of mine from middle school to college. We'll call him Nick. Nick would use Jim Crow racist terminology when talking about non-white people but he also liked to listen to rap music. Me and another friend once asked him, Nick, if you don't like black people, then why do you like music that is made almost exclusively by black people? I swear, he looked us right in the eyeballs and said, quote, I just, uh, let me do the Nick voice. I just replace all the N-words with Italian, end quote. Only he didn't say N-word. Nick just switched the words in his head in real time. And he had to do this for him to appreciate black music without having to confront his racist ideology. Whenever Nick would be around black people, he would get along with everyone just fine. Later we would ask, Nick, how come you get along with black people if you think black people are no good? He would say that these ones are cool and that we should know that he really means, like when he's talking about them, that he's talking about the ones who are, you know, over there. And then he would wave his hand southeast towards the city of Chicago. You know, somehow he always knew where southeast was, and I gotta give him credit for having a good sense of direction, although minus two points for making a good sense of direction a racist thing. When accused of acting like a white supremacist, he would say, I'm not white, I'm Italian. Then when we would bring up something bad that the Italians were known for, he would say, I'm not Italian, I'm American. I was born here. 
Even Fletcher's lucid description of slave ship gymnastics falls short of the level of acrobatics going on inside Nick's brain. But that's the effect of growing up in a white habitus. I can give you another example about a time that I caught myself thinking something racist. A few years ago, I listened to an audiobook version of Beecher Stowe's 1852 abolitionist novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and the voice actor, despite his, I thought, white accent, did a good job doing both the black and white voices. I mentioned to my wife that, you know, he did great, but it's weird that they would hire a white actor to play the voice of enslaved black people. To which my wife replied, how do you know that the actor is white? I didn't. I hadn't looked it up or found other work that the actor had done. He just sounded white to me. Even though I know that how people talk is based on the environment that they grow up in and has nothing to do with any type of phenotypical trait. Phenotypical? You get the idea. Skin color. I know better than that. I know that a black voice is any voice that comes from a black person, and still I accepted my bias without a second thought. In a survey conducted by Bonilla Silva and presented in Racism Without Racists, he finds that black interviewees also exhibited signs of being affected by a colorblind ideology, some repeating tropes from the cultural model of racism that black people are lazier than white people or that they care less about education than white people. So when I say that it affects everybody, I mean everybody. I would say that minimization, reducing the undesirable to the smallest degree while maximizing the desirable, is Fletcher's most common tactic for writing about difficult subject matter. She clearly means well, but... When it comes to matters of race and oppression, altering the facts to do good has never been a good idea. White abolitionists in the antebellum U.S. created anti-slavery propaganda containing sympathetic but childlike caricatures of black people to gain sympathy from other whites, while instilling even more negative stereotypes about black people into the imaginations of white people. Black lawyers from the NAACP in the 1950s in the U.S. worked towards getting black children into better-funded white schools. A good thing, but at the expense of gaining more funding and resources for the black schools that already had black children in them and made desegregation more of a symbolic one while ignoring the more practical and material problems that could have also used some attention. Both groups meant well, and ended up making historic progress, but also added to the problem and subtracted from solutions, with the former creating new racial stereotypes and the latter using resources that could have gone towards a more egalitarian educational system that was promised but never delivered from Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896. The lesson to be learned from history now is not to repeat the mistakes of the bad guys, you know, like, you know, don't repeat the mistakes of the past. That's not the lesson anymore. The lesson to be learned from history now is not to not repeat the mistakes of the bad guys, but to not make the same mistakes as the good guys. 
What I don't see any of in Tapworks is cultural racism. At no point does Fletcher say that anybody of any race does something purely because their race compels them to. As I said, I think that blaming an entire culture is the lowest form of racism and only one step above Jim Crow. And Fletcher shows no signs of falling for any of that mumbo-jumbo. In fact, I'm sure that Fletcher has nothing but the best of intentions. An anonymous source who knew Fletcher said to me in an interview that she was kind and caring and told me that she was heavily involved in outreach programs in the Buffalo and Niagara areas of New York State, conducted programs of art integration in the public school system, and gave out scholarships to her studio to low-income families. Beverly Fletcher sounds like a great person, but we must not fall into the trap of judging her text via personalism. Linguistic anthropologist Jane H. Hill, in her 2008 book, The Everyday Language of White Racism, describes personalism as an ideology that, quote, holds that the meanings of utterances are determined by the intentions of the speakers, end quote. A person who believes in personalism is someone who says things like, I say what I mean, and I mean what I say, and other things like, um, my word is my bond, implying that their identity is directly linked to the integrity of their speech and writing. According to Hill, quote, in personalism, speakers believe something and intend to communicate about it. In order to do so, they choose words that match their beliefs and that will therefore best fulfill their intentions, end quote. But Hill and her colleagues are not fans of this view. As Hill puts it, quote, linguistic anthropologists reject a simplistic personalist account of meaning in favor of one that understands meaning as the complex product of long chains of historical negotiation, where each exchange of utterances is a moment of renewed intersubjective creation of meaning, end quote. Personalism, like liberalism, places the onus squarely on the individual and ignores influences from material and environmental sources. That's why that clip of Lee Atwater is so horrifying. What does that say about the structure of our society when our top bosses, the president of the United States, have used and continue to use covert racist rhetoric in broadcasts that reach millions? Fletcher grew up while this colorblind ideology was first being formed was a full-fledged adult at the time of its codification and lived with it for decades before Tapworks was written. That she wrote so progressively, after all of that, all I can say is, bravo, Miss Fletcher. She ignores problematic writing in her sources, perhaps unconsciously, but doesn't repeat them either. Fletcher creates pastoral prose not to cover up the insidious iniquities in these tap dance histories, but because she is perhaps writing in the colorblind ideology. That ideology says that tap dance is, first and foremost, happy, which is another form of abstract liberalism, 
because it leaves out the people who are unhappy and tap dancing at the same time, implying that if you are not happy while tap dancing, then perhaps what you are doing is not tap dancing at all. So why write about it? This is a lot of speculation, but it also feels very familiar. When I was a kid competing in dance competitions, I always got the note, the boy needs to smile more. And I remember how uncomfortable and exhausting it was to maintain the composure of fake happiness and a giant clownish smile. When I would do solos and really would start to feel myself, I received comments like, don't forget to smile and careful not to frown and you look angry. Honestly, the worst part about learning to tap dance for me was having to plaster a fake grin on my face to appease some invisible rule that tap dancers have to look like victims of the Joker, right? With giant ear-to-ear smiles that never move, remain frictionless. Maybe that's why someone cut Heath Ledger's Joker. Uh, Maybe that's why they cut the Joker's mouth in Dark Knight Returns. Because they were tired of him getting only high golds at star power. We'll show you how to smile a little... I could only find two reviews of Tapworks online. One was a review of the first edition of Tapworks by Debbie D. in 1999 in in an issue of Dance Magazine. D. doesn't say much about the history part of the book, but does say that, quote, Tapworks has been adopted by the Dance Masters of America, Inc. as the official tap manual to be used in conjunction with the organization's tap teaching syllabus, which was also written by Ms. Fletcher. You may order from Dance Masters of America, Inc., end quote. From the acknowledgments page in Tapworks, I knew that it was the official reference manual of the DMA, but I didn't know that DMA sold it too. According to my same anonymous source, who is occasionally employed by DMA, hence the anonymousness is, Tapworks is still their official reference book for tap dance. I have reached out to the national president, national treasurer, and the national office of Dance Masters of America for comments, but have yet to receive any replies. DMA runs conventions, competitions, and, as a brochure on their website tells me, offers a teacher's training school on the campus of the State University of New York at Buffalo with an optional track for tap dance. Enrollment for this training program is $500, $575 for non-members, makes sense, uh, plus $20 for a shirt, and $25 for the DMA tap manual, which I suppose is written by Fletcher. Oh, uh, careful of the $50 late registration fee. Make sure you register early. Avoid that fee. And after four years... And I, so I suppose that money times four, so that's $2,000 later, a successful exam earns you a certification in dance education from Dance Masters of America. Since I couldn't get a hold of anyone at DMA, I am left to wonder, do they address some of the problems in Tapworks at the school? Never mind the ideological parts, what about the mistakes and errors? Has that ever been addressed? Is DMA making a profit by using outdated textbooks? On a whim, I went and checked out the DMA website. In the history section, as of 4-24-2022, 
The website has this to say regarding the integrity of the DMA dance manuals, that, quote, DMA is constantly striving to maintain excellence in dance education, which is the keystone of this organization, end quote. I, you know, I hate to be a nitpicker again, but there, there could have been a comma before which, because, well, it's an unrestricted phrase, so it doesn't really have anything, but whatever. No comment before the witch. Moving on. The website continues, stating that, quote, manuals and DVD supplements in each area of dance are available to members and non-members alike, end quote. Now, <laughs> I'm doing it again. Now, there's an unnecessary comma after supplements. Manuals and DVD supplements in each area of dance are, like, you just, you could just say, well, See, here I go again. I'm, I'm getting too close to it. What else does it have to say? Let's take a look. Quote, They manual are a great asset for members and non-member to use a teaching guide and learning tool or to assist non-member to prepare for DMA membership examinations. End quote. DMA never proofread the section on their website that's being used to sell you on the quality of of their educational materials. The final sentence in the paragraph reads, quote, The manuals are constantly scrutinized, updated, and upgraded so that we may remain on top of the constantly evolving world of dance education, end quote. Well, judging by the errors in Tapworks and on their own website, forgive me if I find that statement to be a bit dubious. Everywhere you go to buy Tapworks online, Amazon, Target, Thrift Books, Goodreads, Bookshop.org, in descriptions on eBay, they all say the exact same thing in their taglines for the book. Quote, as the official reference manual of the Dance Masters of America, end quote. You're telling me that no one at DMA noticed the term freeborn slave used twice the racial and ethnic swap of Juba's teacher, or any of the other inaccuracies, like the, the slave laws of Virginia. It's been 20 years since the revised second edition was published. What are they waiting for? Has any tap dancer working for the DMA brought this up? Has any tap dancer working for DMA brought this up? Has any tap dancer working for DMA read this book? I am totally open to Achem. scrutinizing, updating, and upgrading my conclusion. But until I get more data, I must take the position that Dance Masters of America is complicit in maintaining a white supremacist social structure by using books written in a racially colorblind style, full of inaccuracies, and are doing this by actively and aggressively doing nothing at all. Since 1998, at least regarding a tap manual that they endorse, they have done nothing at all. At least, nothing that I've heard about. But maybe you've heard about something. Has this been addressed? If anyone has any new data to contribute that is either for or against my conclusion, tell me in the Gasps from a Dying Art Forum group on Facebook. Wow. Facebook for data collection. Why hasn't anyone done this before? JK, they're doing it right now. 
But there is a larger problem afoot. According to multiple online demographics sites, the racial makeup of dance teachers in the United States is about 65% white, 14% Hispanic and Latino people, which covers a broad range of ethnicities, and 10% black people. To put that into perspective, the data from the U.S. Census Bureau for 2021 put the racial makeup of the U.S. at 60% white, Hispanic and Latino people at 18.5%, and black people at 13.4%. In other words, the racial makeup of dance teachers in the U.S. contains a higher percentage of white teachers to non-white teachers than the percentage of white human beings to non-white human beings living in the U.S., Since we know that residential segregation is as bad as ever, and people often attend their local studio and localish conventions and workshops, then it is easy to induce that the majority of the dance teaching industry is a white habitus. White people are only now beginning to realize, I mean, just the superficial flaws in the system, like nude colored tights. I'm doing the quotes with my fingers, you can't see it though. You can spot the dog whistle rhetoric, too. Like when people say, when Jabowin's gonna like this, ballet is the root of all dance. Ignoring dance forms from indigenous people from all around the world who were dancing a thousand years before King Louis XVI ever picked up his first ballet slipper. Another one, I prefer classic tap or traditional tap. But what does that mean? Classic and traditional? Compared to when? Was there a a classic and traditional period in in U.S. history that I missed? The only classical period I am aware of is from the year 200 to 900 A.D. So unless Alexander the Great was busting out a triple time step atop the Gordian knot, then I think that those labels are dog whistles for something else. And I think that is, even if the people doing the dog whistles aren't aware of it, The same thing that DeMille meant, or what Paul Draper meant when he called his method of substituting ballet terminology for tap vernacular in his classes a, quote, serious approach to tap dancing, end quote. Was the tap dancing done by non-ballet tap dancers not serious? Was John Bubbles not serious? Now that we know the style of the colorblind ideology and have identified its tools and gone over a number of examples, we can begin to dismantle corrupt social, political, and economic structures, particularly in tap dance, how great, and hopefully build something better. I agree, we should scrutinize and update our understanding of history and our role within it. Like I said before, Maybe we can learn an important lesson from the mistakes of our heroes, too. Recently, hate crimes have been on the rise as of a 2020 statistical report conducted by the FBI. If racism was solved in the 1960s, how do we explain this? In 2022, state leaders are doing their best to take all mention of race out of the school system. Parents are lining up and crying that, I am not a racist. And by Jim Crow standards, no, they are not. So if there is no talk of race in the school, and the parents are on the up and up, but that they also agree that racism still exists, where are people learning how to be racist? 
They're learning it just by interacting with the various types of structures, systems, and institutions built around us. Structures built using the language of racially colorblind ideology. As tap dancers, we represent a long history of civil rights pioneers, like William Henry Lane and Bill Robinson breaking down uh, the color bar, Leonard Reed and Willie Bryant defying public statute by working in whites-only venues, Arthur Duncan for breaking ground on the Lawrence Welk Show, Alice and Burt Whitman for showing us what women can do and who they can be, Sammy Davis Jr., Brenda Buffalino, Diane Walker, Gregory Hines, Savion Glover. We can continue the tradition of pointing out the flaws in the system and taking pragmatic steps to change them. Tap dancers have changed the world before, and we can do it again by creating more work that addresses the problem of the racially colorblind ideology that, as of the publication of this episode of GASPS, we currently live under. At least, that's my plan. But that's just a gasp from a dying art form. All thoughts and opinions on this podcast, unless otherwise attributed, are my own, and do not reflect the thoughts and opinions of anyone else at the Mad Rhythms Podcast Network or any supporters of this program. But, oh baby, do I have citations and notes for all of this. As they say, I got the receipts Y'all. And you have to be a Patreon subscriber to see them. Or else, I guess you can find one of my Patreon subscribers. Just ask them to send you a copy. Uh, uh, no, wait. Uh, don't do that. Uh, that that won't work. Uh, but all, 50% of all support from Patreon goes to the Man Rhythms Tap Academy on Chicago's historic, beautiful, luscious South Side. Or you can send me a tip via my new tip jar. Feature in the show notes. Thank you to our Patreon supporters, Liz Rancourt-Smith, Junior Lanyon, and welcome back, Pamela Hetherington. This is a little bit of a rough episode, but I owe you the truth as best as I can find it, and this is that I promise. Before we go, yeah, it's time for the Tap Dance Podcast Roundup. Finger guns. I only have one podcast for you this episode, and that is to introduce you to the Either And podcast, part of the brand spanking new Mad Rhythms Podcast Network, hosted by Mad Rhythms co-founder and artistic director, Brill Berry. Brill explains the name in his first episode, which is out now, and a number of other episodes are out now. He does them very quickly, and will soon eclipse this show which I'm not salty about at all. The name of his show, Either And, in a nutshell, refers to how things in life are often not either or, but are either and. Take, for example, the nonviolent approach to the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s by Dr. Martin Luther King. And compare that to the more militant strategy of Malik El Shavaz, born Malcolm Little, best known as Malcolm X. Some people might say that you must choose one approach or the other, but Barrett makes the case that, well, no, there is room for both. That those who dismissed Dr. King 
might take Malcolm X more seriously, while those put off by Malcolm X might be more open to Dr. King's approach. Both were major forces for positive change for more people than either would have been if the other had not existed. For another example, take the subject matter of this episode. The concept of either and is found in the title of Benito Silva's book, Racism Without Racists. There can be both. To be honest, I really think it's it's a real piece of, of philosophy. And you know, Brill gets it from tap dance. So if you're looking to define tap dance philosophy, here is a life philosophy developed by a man after many years of experience and cake who came to this, you know, normative conclusion. So there you go. This thing's, this this uh, podcast is supposed to be about history and philosophy. Here is, I think, a genuine organic tap dance philosophy. So check out the Either And podcast and the other fine shows on the Mad Rhythms Podcast Network. So far, it's just me. But you can find them wherever fine podcasts are sold or by going to madrhythms.com. And be sure to take a look at the Mad Rhythms 20th Anniversary Fundraiser. Just search for M-A-D-D Rhythms and GoFundMe and it pops right up. Thus ends another Gasps episode. Thank you for listening. I don't see color and my world is gray. Grass is gray, sky is gray, everything's gray in the USA. Can't you see all this history is killing me? Ask me how I know, oh, 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 because they told me so. It's a gas from a dying art form, gas from a dying art form. All right, sorry, I had to go screech the old weasel, if you know what I mean. And I immediately apologize for uh, making a joke about urination, about like that. So look, this is the bonus section, right? We're getting a little loose here. See, I'm going to crack open another beer. I drink beer when I record these, because they actually take pretty long. Uh, so, But this is the bonus section where we get a little loose, and we uh, kind of... Lose the squares. We didn't grow up with cassette tapes where they did little bonus sections if you just kept listening, if you just left the tape rolling. Uh, so here we go. Bonus. Ooh, baby, this was a tough one. 
If you made it this far, huzzah and kudos to you. And kudos to me, because I read like seven books to write this episode. Because <laughs> I was having a hard time criticizing Tapworks. Even though I knew that something was amiss. But how do you describe something that you can't see? The 1930s syllabi books are easy to scrutinize because they are the old, you know, kind of Jim Crow era books uh, where they just say racist stuff. But this is completely different. I don't think that Beverly Fletcher uh, was a racist, but she did, in my opinion, write some racist stuff. And by all accounts, seemed like a top-notch human being, like probably all of the writers of these books. And I... Figure I better do my research before dropping bombs on her, right? But anyways, on the last two pages of Tapworks, uh, the tap dance history, Fletcher provides a unique history of famous dance teachers like Henry Latang, Phil Black, Danny Hochter. You'll see ads for him in uh, doing conventions in the old dance magazines in the, um, I want to say maybe the 60s. I don't know. I got to go look. That's a future episode. Um, and, and some history in Tapworks is, is on the, the big city dance studio culture. And I, I thought that was a really nice touch. Like I said a second ago, I'm going through old issues of Dance Magazine for a future episode. And I see a lot of ads and interviews with teachers, some of whom Fletcher writes about. So that was cool to get some backstory, even if minor, on some of these names and faces I've been seeing in ye old dance magazines. Uh, regarding the the African Africans selling Africans, yes, always provide some context when mentioning African slave traders. Tell how slavery in Africa, like every other place on earth at the time, was different than the chattel slavery that would be developed by, you know, England and, well, kind of just all of Europe, and then uh, especially in the U.S. Take the Bight of Biafra, the coastal trading region in what is now southern Nigeria, and their three-tier caste system in the 14th century, before the Europeans got there. There was a lower class, the Ohu, who served periods of enslavement to members of the privileged class, the Diala, as punishment for either committing a crime, owing a debt, or were prisoners of war. Kind of like our modern-day <laughs> prison system, right? Unlike modern prisoners in the U.S., the enslaved were allowed to own property and make money and live a relatively normal life, although they were occasionally sacrificed to the gods, uh, but, but could sometimes get out of it by becoming enslaved to the gods. Huh? By becoming part of the Osu class, like an exiled monk who gets to live in exchange for taking care of and maintaining a shrine or something like that for the rest of their life, right? Away from the, the, the mass of the population. With the introduction of European slave traders and European goods, whole new societies like the, the Aro developed uh, as middlemen between upper-class Africans and Europeans, and not only helped expand the reach of the slave traders, but also expanded the criteria for being enslaved, leading to kidnapping from not only the coastal regions, but deep into the hinterlands. So, yes, 
Uh, there was slavery in Africa, but not like we think of it, and was only exacerbated by the arrival of Europeans. Descendants of the enslaved and the slave traders are still a touchy subject in Nigeria today. So maybe us Westerners could at least learn how to add descriptors to the actors in the African slave trade. In regards to Fletcher talking about you know the, the why of minstrelsy, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that blackface minstrelsy didn't only reinforce stereotypes that white people had of many ethnicities. But what the minstrel shows were also famous for was creating stereotypes, like the modern derogatory use of the term Uncle Tom, which comes not from the abolitionist novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, but from the appropriated and inverted minstrel version of the character. Black feminist author and culture critic Michelle Wallace, in an article titled Uncle Tom's Cabin, before and after the Jim Crow era, wrote that, quote, Uncle Tom, as created by Harriet Beecher Stowe, was nothing like the flat stock figure who has come down to us, mostly through the inventions of theater and film, as a white-identified, elderly, and cowardly bootlicker. In Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom is youthful in the prime of his life, the father of several children, and the adored husband of his wife. He is large, strong, betrays no trace of cowardice, and there is no question that he hates slavery and wants more than anything else to be free, although not at any cost. End quote. This is what blew my mind when I read Uncle Tom's Cabin and then looked up the history, that the pejorative phrase we know now was a racist plot developed as pushback for the pro-abolitionist book. So the fact that we unanimously accept this modern meaning means that yeah the racists won they won this one they took a thing that hurt them made altered versions of it and now you see people online calling beecher stowe a racist and calling black u.s republican politicians uncle tim uncle tom is a pejorative was created by white supremacist blackface performers. And the fact that nobody knows that, but uses this term today in that way, is a perfect example of how white supremacist language becomes embedded and invisible. I mean, come on. They got us. You gotta give the white supremacist this one. Because that's not what Uncle Tom means. How would you feel if that happened to other famous black characters? What if a black police officer gets caught doing something bad and everyone starts calling him a Virgil Tibbs? The governor of Florida passes a Virgil Tibbs law that puts a, a colorblind racist questions on, an, on entrance exams, like asking, you know, for a job as a, let's say, a police officer. They ask him, quote, what actors played the characters Eddie Haskell and the Beaver? on the television show, Leave it to Beaver, end quote, which I do not expect any non-white person to know. You hear me, white supremacists? You leave the great Sidney Poitier out of this. And that's Mr. Tibbs to you. By the way, it's Ken Ormond who plays Eddie and Jerry Mathers as the Beaver. I won't get into it here, 
But look up Heronvolk Democracy during the age of Jackson in the U.S. to understand what Fletcher means when she says in her appeal to the minstrelsy section why liberalism was gaining steam among the working class white people. The short, the short version is that, yes, liberty was trending, but only if you had the correct skin color, which was white. Check out David Rodiger's The Wages of Whiteness, published in 1991. And he's using, you know, that kind of Du Boisian, like, the wage of whiteness, meaning that we get, well, we, you know, white people, pale folk like I, receive not just material but also psychological benefits from living in a white-dominant culture. And that's like wages, right? Like, if you're a wage laborer, part of the wages of identifying as white is you get these benefits. I, I mean, I kept seeing this book, The Wages of Whiteness by Rodiger, uh, cited all over the place, and finally got around to reading it, and it did not disappoint. Did you know that the term the help, which now carries racist connotations for non-white domestic workers, was originally developed by white domestic workers to distance themselves from the word servant, which sounded a little too much like the word slave. So for a black person to be called the help, in the first half of the 19th century, would have been seen as wildly progressive and at the cutting edge of racial tolerance. And now, if you call anyone to help, especially non-white domestic workers, expect to get socked in the eye. It's a good book. Check it out. Wages of Whiteness, David Rodiger, 91. In the 1960s and 70s, and now we're talking about, talking about our president, multiple... Uh, pulling a fast one on us regarding race. In the 1960s and 70s, then-president of the United States, Richard Nixon, had a policy called the, quote, tar baby option, end quote, with the goal uh, being slowing the roll of decolonization in the southern African countries of Rhodesia, Portugal, and South Africa. That wasn't a nickname. That was the actual name given to the policy by the State Department, and they said all sorts of other racist and despicable things about their own citizens in the White House among these politicians and the President, Nixon, and then lied to the citizens they're supposed to be, you know, adherent to. Uh, and we know this because Nixon taped everything. He taped everything that everyone said, including himself. So there's, there's really no debate about it. I say all that to demonstrate how severe the problem is. I mean, he, he said that he wasn't a crook. What were we supposed to do? We believed him. He, he said he wasn't a crook. And it turns out he was a crook, uh, but also a Jim Crow racist. As for DMA award winners, <clears throat> I'm going to put this at the end of the bonus section. There's at least one award winner who has no problem PMing me for using the wrong descriptors in my social media comments and posts, like how enslaved is a more appropriate word than slave to describe the enslaved Africans brought to, to the U.S. And this person is correct. And as soon as it was brought to my attention, I changed my speech accordingly and immediately. No problem. And happy to do it. But now I wonder if they 
said anything about Master Juba being called a freeborn slave or his teacher changing skin color and nationalities. Skin color and ethnicities. And tap dogs being praised for continuing the African roots of tap dance. You, you know, before accepting the annual Dance Masters of America Award. IDK, maybe say they sent DMA APM saying WTF, OMG, IDK. And can we do one last chuckle for <laughs> tap dogs being the African represent? I mean, come on, that's 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 funny. I mean, it's not funny, but that's funny. Okay, thank you so much. Peace out. Respect the dance.